Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach, Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams so you could be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with resources that can help you, including my guide to quickly and easily eliminate rejection from your life, a how-to guide for finding your lesbian soulmate, a quiz to find out what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her, a report that explains the three biggest mistakes most women make when coming out and how to avoid them, and a matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is free at womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. But before we go any further, I have a question. In what ways are lesbian relationships different from straight ones? Could it be true that there's a scientific reason why lesbian intimacy can feel more intense in the early stages of a relationship than it feels for other groups? Well, on this episode of Women Wanting Women, I talk about all of that and much more with Dr. Lauren Costine, a lesbian psychologist, relationship coach, early pioneer of lesbian affirmative therapy, and author of the book, Lesbian Love Addiction. You can learn more about her on her website, drlaurencostine.com. But before you do, stay tuned for the very fun, deep conversation we had together here. Dr. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jordana. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. There's so many topics I want to cover with you. Do you want to start by just introducing yourself and saying where you come from and what you do? Sure. So uh, my name is Dr. Lauren Costine. I go by Dr. Lauren. Um, I'm here in West Hollywood, California, and I also live in the Valley. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in the field for 20 something years. Um, I've been sober for like 23 and a half years. That's how I got into the field actually. Uh, so it's been one of my areas that I work in. Um, but my main love passion is the LGBTQ queer community. Um, and in particular working with lesbians and queer women. And I've been very fortunate to have the honor of working with our community for many years now. And uh, what I've done really is like, I'm the kind of therapist and coach that I don't actually introduce anybody to anything that I haven't done myself. Because you yourself are queer. You didn't mention that, right? But you're part yeah, of our I'm community. Queer. Right. Oh, that's yes. Okay. So I identify because of my generation and I, we can get into the. Sorry, sorry. You too. are, you're part of that. You're a lesbian. I also identify as a lesbian. I don't know why I use <laughs> queer. It's almost like more politically correct to just kind of keep it open, but I also identify as a lesbian. Right, right. So, so I identify as this can get into the really the weeds of it, but lesbian, cisgender, white, you know, like 
Those are all the things. Very out. Um, lead that in my work and in my life, you know. Um, and I, you know, I'm uh, I'm the first first uh, year of uh, Generation X, so um, lesbian is just the word for me, you know. And 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 actually, I don't know if we'll put this in here, but queer has been a process for me, you know, just like, because I came from a generation where that was used so derogatorily that I've had to kind of work with my own internal reactions to hearing that word. It's so much better, but, and I understand why it was sort of adopted in the nineties and, and co-opted. I get all that, but that's been an interesting process for me. Very interesting. Um, and so is the sobriety piece and how it led you to, I guess, fighting your own demons and then helping other people with theirs. Yeah, it was, it was an epiphany. I, I feel very lucky because I had this moment of awakening, if you will. I've had a number of aha moments in my life. And the first real one was the right before I got sober. It was like something just inside of me opened up and I was like, oh my God, you, you have a serious problem with alcohol. And I went to, you know, an IOP, an intensive outpatient treatment program, two or three days later, just checked myself in, took myself there, and kind of just dove off the deep end. Like, I was like, I'm just, I got to do this. Like, I, this is not working. And was kind of, I kind of got it really quickly because of that. I mean, it was just something that I picked up very quickly, started like helping folks at the rehab, they were like, oh, why don't you take them to the movies, blah, blah, blah. So 10 months in or six months in, I'm with my therapist and I'm looking at her and I'm like, I, I really like what you do. You know, I should kind of look into that. 10 months later, I'm in grad school and then just never looked back. Yeah, a lot of the sobriety, I mean, a lot of my friends who are sober speak about their programs and how much it's about giving back and helping others and then holding their hand as they... Uh, go through this very difficult process. So exactly, yeah, 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 yeah. And, that's and part it's life changing. Oh, it's so part of the healing, and it's just like, you know, when you really wake up to something that's destroying you and holding back your potential, and then you're free of that. There's just sort of, for me, it was just this like, ah, oh, you know, yeah, amazing. Oh man, Jump. yeah. So how old were you when you came out? I was, well, okay, good question. My initial coming out was 17, but I was bi. And then around 30, 33, I came out as lesbian. And it took me that long because of what I was talking to you about earlier, what I worked on with my therapist, which was my internalized lesbian phobia. And I didn't, and you know, he wasn't using that term. He was a gay affirmative therapist. He wasn't using that term, but he was helping me understand internalized homophobia. And I had a very conservative home. It wasn't religious. Our, I like to say that our religion was capitalism. My dad went to Harvard Business School and everything was about capitalism is the most incredible system in the world and it's about making money and, you know, and my brother and I were just naturally very different than that. We were just more like, I want meaning in my life. I want to find out what's really going to be valuable and feel good to me. But my mother was extremely homophobic, conservative, um, and 
taking care of her was a big part of my issue. So I struggled for a very long time because when I came out, like she wouldn't talk to me, you know, she, she was very shaming about it. It was, you know, not talked about. It was, you know, the don't ask, don't tell for many years. My first girlfriend was when I moved to Japan. So I moved to Japan right after undergrad and I met my first girlfriend. She was from Australia. How'd you find her? We met at a club. We just met at a club. At a, we, at a gay club? No, at, uh, no, no. We weren't really finding many gay clubs there. This was. That's what surprised me. Yeah. So how'd you it, know she was into it? Like, I, you... I didn't. She just walked in and I was like, wow, who's that? You know, I don't know who that is, but there's something about her. And uh, we just started hanging out. And then I, we were just fooling around. Literally that song, Fool Around and Fell in Love. Fooling around, no big deal. But how I'm does it happen when two people aren't out? When you, you weren't out, I'm assuming she wasn't out. So how does well, that? We drank a lot. Well, that'll work. <laughs> so I can't say that it was, we were, you know, party. we partied so hard in Japan. I mean, that place, this was the... Uh, early 90s this place partied it was before their financial crash there was just money everywhere everyone was just having a good old time it was foreigners were everywhere dancing modeling teaching singing just like this whole from all over the world so Australia Brazil Canada England America we were all there just like getting paid to be there be westerners and be white really what were you getting paid to do I was modeling and I was working at a club. So she uh, walked in and I was immediately intrigued by her, but I didn't, I didn't think like, oh, I want a girl. I was not looking at all. And um, we just started fooling around. And then we went on a trip to Korea. And I mean, I literally like woke up and I was like gobsmack in love. And I didn't even know what to do with myself because then I didn't know how to tell her. So that took a little bit of time too. But of course, right after that, once we finally profess our love for each other, we moved in together. I mean, like, you know, literally two months. Perfectly (laughs) lesbian of you. Right. Exactly. So I spent the rest of the time in my, my time there with her and we were, she was so closeted. I mean, we were so closeted. There was no telling any of, People were just our close friends knew. None of our parents knew. My parent, my parents came to visit, and we pretended we were friends. I mean, this is what it was like at that time. You know, it was just, just really bad, really hard. Okay, so then when did you come out? Come out. Uh, when I'm I thirty-three. Got so how yeah, did you? When I, got, when I got sober. When you got, got sober. Mm-hmm. And um, and then how did you start working then? for the queer community or did you, who did you start when you got sober, you came out, you studied to get your doctorate. Right. So that time I'm getting my doctorate. I'm writing my dissertation. I'm very focused. I'm seeing clients. Um, I start working, I'm brought on by one of my mentors to help code, you know, help develop the LGBT specialization at Antioch. And so, and that's where I started doing the initiation of learning, you know, LGBTQ affirmative psychotherapy. And so we developed this program together. There was a group of us. Um, it was 
unbelievable, the most it incredible experience. It was, you know, it's still one of the only programs of a kind of the, of its kind in the country. Wow. And teaching, developing courses, you know, I did the lesbian identity course, I did the LGBTQ history, history and their story. Well, I call it that now. At the time we just said history. Um, I was writing my dissertation. I mean, you can imagine that the workaholism was really <laughs> in full force. And so, but that's how, that's kind of how it happened. So it just became one of my specialties. Or were you making a joke about workaholism or would you say you went from the addiction of work to the addiction of, I mean, the addiction of alcohol to the addiction of work? No, Jordana, that's a really good question. So I, I would say I'm the kind of addict that has an addictive personality. So to help ameliorate the overwhelming feelings that happened once I got sober, work was one of them. And eventually it was love. So I became very addicted to, so I was doing all this work, you know, spending a lot of time with my career, getting it off the ground, becoming a clinical psychologist is like, and it's takes 10 years, nine to 10 years. So doing all of that. And then eventually I'm like, I want to focus on relationships. Like this is very important to me. So I'm jumping back into relationships and there was one in particular, my book, by the way, is really my story is in there, but I changed the names because at the time when I wrote it, I was just out of a new relationship and I didn't want to expose her. It just didn't, you know, seem right. Um, but I was, there was two very significant relationships that brought me to my knees. And one was I kept going back to the same person over and over again, even though she would end the relationship. But then she'd come back, profess her love, say I was always the one, and say that um, she'd changed. And there was this really sort of naive part of me at the time that would believe her. I mean, eventually over time, I got stronger and less trusting, but I would still give her a chance. Eventually, that stopped. Did your friends all want to kill her? Oh, yeah. I mean, I had, I had friends that were like, you're not allowed to date anyone seriously until I've met them. But, like, you know, very protective. But I'm about like, that one woman that kept ending it, saying, I don't value you enough, and then saying, just kidding, take me back, then just kidding, I don't value it, you at all, enough to want you, and then take me back. Yeah. And, and, I would, if, I, if, that, if you were my friend, I'd be, you know, at the time, I would have been really mad at that person for really devaluing mad, you in that way. Really mad, yes, really mad. And, and um, I was able to finally cut her out. That was very helpful. Just like blocked her everywhere, got rid of her completely. Um, and then my mom passed away suddenly and very um, uh, tragically in a way. She got a very serious brain cancer and was gone in a month. Oh, wow. And it was so traumatizing to my family, right, to me. It really kind of sent me sideways for a long time. Especially because things weren't resolved, right? She no, still... they were for the most part resolved, thank goodness. For the most part, you know, my sobriety helped. I was doing tons of therapy. I would go to her and I would say, we need to work on these things in our relationship. Right, because 12-step programs, they really do help you reconcile with the people in your lives, right? So. Absolutely. And there was just ways in which, you know, she was highly critical, didn't really realize it. And I had to go to her and I'd say, you know, in five minutes of seeing you after several months, 
you've criticized my hair, you've criticized my house, you've criticized what I'm wearing. Like, I don't, I don't want to be around you if you're going to continue to do that. So this slow process of setting boundaries, because I didn't have any, my family didn't have any, I wasn't taught any, I wasn't taught how to stand up to people that don't talk to you nicely, you know, um, and this was all a process, a big, huge learning process. So she actually, to her credit, was like, when I said that to her, oh, dear, I don't want that. And that really started the beginning of a really deep friendship. So we had a good 10 years. She still really made my being a lesbian about her. There was a narcissistic component. She would come back to like, why is this happening to me? She, there was this injured part in her that couldn't just say, oh my gosh, I'm happy for my daughter. You know, she's found herself, she's living her best life. She's happy now, she's free. She doesn't have this horrible like prison inside of her. Like she's not really being who she is, you know. Uh, she couldn't, yeah, that was really hard for her. But still her death brought me to my knees because and I think we can get into this, and I talk about this in the book too, is like when you're a lesbian, when you're women-centered, when women are your, your compass, right? You're more into women than other folks. Your mother is so important. Now, I'm not gonna say they're not important for straight women or bi women or you know anything, but of course they are. Our mothers are, are everything. We come from their bodies. You know, we, you know, they're holding us the most in the beginning. They are everything. Which is true and, for every human. But as far as women, I mean, as far as lesbians and straight men go, we prefer women. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There was something I, there was a comfort that I have oh, had always with, I mean, I, my mother, thank goodness is still with us, but there's a, a comfort I've always had with my mother, with my grandmother, with my aunts, that I didn't feel that same bodily comfort with my father, my grandfather, my uncles. Um, there's just, and, I, and I've also thought to it, to myself, I wonder if I was straight, if I'd have a different like physical reaction to these men in my life that I'd want to, that I'd feel a different way with them. Not that I don't completely love my father and grandfather and, and my uncles. I really am very blessed with wonderful family. But I know what you're talking about, and I've observed it in myself. And it's interesting. I've never heard anyone else say it before. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's not really discussed because it's not, I don't know, supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to kind of say those things. Well, but... it's like the, the number one, like, taboo, right? It's like the edible thing that, uh, right, what's his right, face, right, right, uh, right, right, right. Freud, but... what's his face? That... <laughs> right, right. And so taking that a step further, if that actually does happen, and I have stepkids, my wife has two biological children, she's the birth mom. I saw it with my youngest stepkid, like he, he's so into her. And there was a period of time where he was just so into her, you know, so it's, it's fascinating to watch in real time, you know, in an anecdotal way. It's like, Yes, here is this science experiment. It's right here, you know. So when she was diagnosed and started passing, there was, I mean, the trauma was, you know, just beyond. And, um, and then a little time after that, someone who I'd known for a long time, who I'd always been like insanely attracted to, um, 
kind of started saying I had a dream about you. Oh, yes, that kind of dream. That must have been nice to hear. It was because she was, you know, extremely hot to me. And it's definitely uh, the kind of text you, you want to get. It sounds like the story is about to go to a place where she's a nightmare. <laughs> but in the time when you... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know where this is going and it's not going anywhere good. But at the time you got that text, I'm happy oh, for you. Oh, <laughs> man. And, you know, the ironic thing is she had already, she was the one that introduced me to the idea of love addiction. She had already done some work around love addiction. I was starting to realize because of the other one that I had a serious problem. Like I had something that was going on. And being in 12 steps already, I was like, well, maybe I'm a love addict. Sex addiction did not apply to me. It didn't make sense. That wasn't what I was running around and doing like compulsively, but I was, I had no control over like who I fell in love with, whether they were healthy or, or a good fit for me or any of that. So what do you think it was based in? Like, yeah. What do you think it was based in? What do you mean? If it wasn't about how good she was for you, what was it that was sparking this love? What was oh, it that would trigger yeah. it for you? So, okay, so that's where we get into the unconscious stuff, right? Mm. So at the end of the day, what I really realized in my own analysis and what I do when I work with other folks is my mother had this kind of seduction, rejection quality. And I don't mean sexually seductive to me, but that she was- Push and pull. Yeah, very available sometimes. I felt extremely loved. And then I think when she got overwhelmed, because she had a lot of avoidant attachment stuff, she would shut down and it would feel very cold to me. And then suddenly I'm this little girl who loves her more than anything. And I don't understand what's going on. Like, I don't understand. So I imprinted that, right? That's an imprint of love for me, right? Is that someone loves you, adores you, you feel... And then there was like the attic part of me that never wanted that to stop, right? And then suddenly it's pulled away. I don't understand. I'm going to blame myself. I'm not going to blame my mom. Child brains don't blame the parents for anything that's going on. The way we try to make sense of things with the limited abilities we have at that time is we say, ah, uh, something's wrong with me. Right. What could I, if I was, a, if it was, I was a better little girl, she would give me more love. Right. She wouldn't pull away. Right. So, and you know, when I'm also criticized at times or what felt like criticism to me, then you can kind of pull that all together. So what I was drawn to unconsciously and didn't know it was the same thing. Seduction, rejection, push, pull. I, so the next girlfriend, the one that really brought me to my knees, I'm thinking we're going into this thing consciously. I think she's done all this work. I'm, kind of done a, you know I've got some awareness around it but we merged like maniacs so texting constantly I'm getting high as a kite from this I mean one of the things I think was so helpful for me about staying sober is I was finding these ways to get naturally high you know I was like so there's this high I don't know do you know what I'm talking about that like sure you know when we're excited about someone and you're falling for each other but, you know, I guess the constant texting could be good or bad depending on what's in those texts, right? I, what the strategies I do when I get to the dating part, I don't have anyone text. I don't ever encourage anyone to text very much in the beginning because, and I talk about this in the book, it creates a false sense of intimacy. The intensity is mistaken for intimacy. 
Well, it depends what you're talking about. If you're really getting to know each other and becoming. Right. And I just don't, I think you should reserve that for in person and, you know, like really, really intense. And yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, yeah, were we getting crazy? Absolutely. Did she eventually say, I love you over text? She eventually said, I love you over text. Like that was our first initiative. And that was like a weekend, you know? So I'm telling you, it was very heightened. I met this one girl, um, I won't name names. Uh, <laughs> and she was such a seduce and abandoned type. On our first date, she said, I love you. Right. That's so it's crazy. So crazy. So crazy. crazy. She was like, I'm obsessed with you. I'm obsessed with you. I love you. Literally first right. date. And what did you think? At the time? What did I think at the time? It didn't take long for me to learn that she was completely full of shit. Okay. So that's great. Yeah. Well, because she said, I love you. And then she like, didn't text the next day, which uh, I know maybe you would have told her to do, but I'd encourage sort of the opposite actually, but I'm not working with love addicts. So I can totally understand why if you're dealing with a love addict, your relationship with texting, your relationship with all these things would be completely different versus working with people who don't have a love addiction problem or just two whole humans really trying to connect and get to know each other. And in those contexts, I think women do text a lot. And I think that there's something good about that. I know my partner and I, we started, I mean, look, we had work to do. So during the day we were working, it's not like we were just always on our phone, but we, we got to know each other really well over text, told each other stories, um, you know, shared a lot with each other. And during that time, I also, when we met, I had COVID. Uh, we matched on, so I, we had like a 10 day waiting period where we couldn't hang out. Um, so during those 10 days, we, we would send each other texts and we were really getting to know each other. And it wasn't, you know, I want you, I want you, I want you, because we hadn't met in person yet. So they really were conversational texts and really, it was cool. Um, and I think that there is room in a healthy lesbian relationship for constant texting um, but I think if it's all on the intensity and all on the feeling and, and no substance whatsoever, then you are going to be in that problem. So I, I do think the content of the text does have relevance. Well, and I, yeah, I completely agree with where you're going. And it makes a lot of sense. And I think the key thing you said there is, are you working with women who have love addiction? Right? Are you working with lesbians with love addiction, queer women with love addiction? Are you working with lesbians that don't? like really don't have that issue, then you can really give different suggestions, different, you know, ideas of how to get out there. But when you, I have this and others have this, this addiction to the hit you get in the early phase. Now, can I ask you a question just to, yeah. just to get a better definition around this lesbian love addiction um, and then how it relates to, because we were talking about seduce and abandon. It sounds a lot like the avoidant attachment style. Um, and then the love addiction also sounds like the other part of it would be then the anxious attachment style. Is it just that, or is there something deeper? And can you explain attachment styles? Cause I'm not, I'm not a trained therapist. So, or a counselor. <laughs> so there's, so it's, it's a number of things. I kind of like to look at it as a pie. Attachment is a big piece. It's not everything. It's a big piece. Then it's like, what's your family system like, you know, uh, what's your culture that you grew up in like? How does it view uh, women? How's it view lesbians? How's it view, you know, same-sex relationships? But the attachment piece is key because that is starts right when we're out of the womb, right? And it happens 
and the studies, they go back to the 50s. It's very empirically validated. It's wonderful for all of us to know this. It's very important to know your own style. Um, you can become securely attached, but so let's say what, let's explain just for the audience of people who don't know, what is attachment? Like, what does attachment mean? And what are the different attachment styles? So when you're securely attached, you're, I'm going to go early because we want to start early. That's the foundation. And then we can go to when we're adults. When you're securely attached, your mom leaves the room. You might go, oh, I don't want you to leave, but then you're fine. And there's a babysitter there and you're good. And you start playing with the babysitter. And then mom comes back and you're happy to see her and you're fine. You're like, oh, I'm so glad you're back. If you're anxiously attached, mom leaves, you don't calm down. You don't know if she's coming back. There's a party that's afraid she's not coming back. You think she'll never come back. And then that like, you know, fear of dying and annihilation comes in. Because if we were, just to be clear, because during evolution, if we were a small child and our mother left and didn't come back, we would have died. You would die. You know, I mean, it is so essential that the mom attaches to the baby for our very survival as a species, right? And we see this in the animal kingdom with the primates, right? They, you know, a lot of these different animals stay for very long periods of time, maybe up to nine, 10. Humans stay the longest. And the reason that we stay the longest is the more intelligent a creature is, the longer it needs to be with the parents. And it's just, the brain takes so long to develop in these different stages of development of, you know, the prefrontal cortex doesn't complete development till 25. Oh, wow. Because we, you know, have a lot of intelligence. So, um, okay. so yeah, the anxious attachment side, so the secure attached, the mother can leave, sad at first, but no big deal. You can really enjoy your day, be with your babysitter, have a great Not time. You're having a great time. Mom yeah. comes back, thrilled to see the mom. And everything's so okay. Not mad at her, not punishing, nothing like that. But when the anxious attached mom leaves, the anxiety stays. And exactly. there's an inability to regulate at that point. Right. And they might come back and they might cling even harder when the mom comes back. Maybe they decide to be mad at her for a little while. It depends on the nature of the child. And then the avoidant, the mom leaves, eh, no big deal continues to play mom comes back no big deal like doesn't really pay much attention to mom so the avoidant attached kid doesn't it doesn't love its mom like what is the avoidant attached it's just they have what we think is they have found being attached to her is too dangerous for them it feels unsafe it doesn't feel like the fear of rejection is so great they don't want there's like this eh, you know and then what I like to get into is then it really can be relationship dependent. So you might get this grounding, right? Of you're secure, you're avoidant, you're um, anxious. And then you can be what's called disorganized or ambivalent, which is a little of both, right? Disorganized is a really bad state. You're like, you're anxiously attached, but you're also avoidantly sort of at the same time. And that can create a lot of chaos in relationships later in life. A client of mine is dealing with someone like that right now where the minute she pays attention to her, the woman wants to run for the woods. And then the minute my client starts to give up a little bit, she's running back and beg, you know, and, and, and can't. And it seems yeah. very chaotic. Right. So that's a disorganized attachment. Um, and, and, you know, there's like an ambivalence 
to it too. So when we talked about this as babies, let's talk about how this all how how this all impacts us when we grow up and the kind of lovers that we grow up to be. Okay. So I think all of us know, I mean, you know, Shane is the best example of the avoidant. Of the avoidant. She is. I mean, obviously she leaves uh, Carmen at the, you know, at the altar. I wouldn't have left Carmen at the altar. No way. She's hot. She's hot. My God. So that's kind of the quintessential. Yeah, quintessential avoidant. Love avoidant. Um, and it's a lot of the seduce and abandon, right? Because she comes in. Seduce and abandon. And what they get a hit on, and there's a whole diagram in my book about it, but there's a, they, the hit they get on is the chase. They love the chase. They love the hunt, right? They might walk into a party or a club and the hunt is on, right? And they're going to go and they're getting, they're getting the oxytocin and the dopamine and the cocktail from hitting on women and getting women to be, you know, feeling good about getting hit on. Um, Once the intensity of that is gone and you're getting into real intimacy, they're out. They're out, right? So we've got the seducer rejector. Anxious, when it's very extreme, they're the the type that when they don't get a text from you, they think you might have already abandoned the relationship. And this is early on. You know, you just met, you just started texting, and they're the ones that if they really have no self-awareness, they start texting you so often and can scare you away, right? You're like, why are you, why we just met, why are you texting me all day? You're like, this is, you know, it's not an equal kind of situation. Not equal, yeah. Right, or they're calling their friends and they're saying, I haven't heard from her for two hours. Do you think she's already left? You know, that kind of a thing. Um, so that's a sort of an anxious, an ex- you know, extreme anxious style. Creating insecurities where there need not be any. Yeah, so a secure attachment is, oh, I've met this wonderful woman. I'm very excited. We're going to meet on Thursday. I do get to see her in two days. I'll double check to confirm that we're going to meet at Thursday at five. And then you go on with your life and you're fine, you know? My, my partner and I are both what I would consider to be secure attached. And I would say it's true that we didn't, neither of us worried about if the other was going to show up for the date. We didn't need to reconfirm. If I didn't hear from her for a few minutes, neither of us would be concerned about it one bit. But I will also say I never wanted to not do the right thing. Not, you know, so on, I remember on the days where I knew the day before she had texted me first, I would make it a point to text her first that day so that she didn't always feel like she had to be the first one to text. And then, and then the next day she would text me first and I didn't have to even say anything. And I remember, um, on the first night when we had a phone date, it was the first, we'd never, we were only texting until we made it a time to meet on video. And then after that video date that we had and it went really, really well. It was kind of a tragic night though, because one of my best friend's moms had COVID and was dying. So, um, I then ended up on the phone with one of my best friends for a really long time. And I remember there was just this moment in my head where I was like, I have to text. I, I, I did. I remembered that I didn't want her to go to sleep. My, my girlfriend who we had just met on video for the first time, but I, even though I was dealing with my best friend with this other thing, something entered my mind that I didn't want her to 
go to sleep that night without hearing from me that I had a really nice time with her, you know? Right. Um, and right. she was saying how when the minute the text came in, she said, not only did she knew, know that I was going to text her then, but that if she, that if I hadn't, that she would. And this right. isn't because either of us were being desperate or needy or crazy. It was just, just her, I was trying to make her feel, I felt secure. I was trying to make her feel secure. And you wanted to let her know you had a nice time. Like, you know, you wanted to pass that message along too, right? Right. So I, so what I'm yeah. saying is there is some room for heavy texting without it being from right. a dysfunctional place. Yeah. And that's not super heavy texting. Like heavy texting is when you get, I don't know, really emotional, like deep into the emotions and you just met someone. That's what, and you have a tendency towards love addiction. Totally. There was definitely before we, we there was no emotion involved. We were just telling each other stories right, and having a nice exactly. conversation and getting to know each other. Yeah. I there's I think that sounds really lovely actually the way it was. It was yeah, perfectly wonderful. There, there's no I wouldn't if you were my client, I wouldn't have any red flags there. Yeah. <laughs> I um, my therapist it. said the same thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's it's there's there's another level that I'm really looking for if someone has these tendencies. Totally. Yeah. Um, in this book, I think it's called Attached that I read. One of the funny things they said was that um, oftentimes anxious um, attached people, although a secure attached person would actually make them far happier technically, because we would do the things that would make them feel secure. They find secure attached people boring and prefer <laughs> the avoided attached. <laughs> That's until they do the work. Okay. They're also working out unconsciously their childhood trauma, most likely with their mom, that hasn't been resolved yet. Can I say another thing that I think is funny? Because I've had I had a very secure attachment with my mom and my family. You know, we're really, really great. The only times in life I've ever been anxiously attached, and this is another lesbian thing that I that I like one of my theories about lesbians, the way that you had the theory about the edible stuff with the lesbians. The only time I've ever been anxiously attached had more to do with the way that girls were mean to me growing up or cliques. It was from the fear, like social anxiety um, from other girls. And I think the reason for that was because growing up as a lesbian, not knowing that I was a lesbian, um, I had these feelings for my female friends that they didn't feel back for me. Like the certain friends that I wanted to be close to, they didn't want to be close to me in those same ways. Now, I didn't understand that I wanted an intimacy that they just like, you know, I didn't understand any of these things. It was just cloudy and nebulous to me and I didn't understand but what I did understand was that uh, that those girls didn't want to be close to me in ways that I wanted to be close with them and that in some ways did give some did raise some insecurity um, and I think it made me in the early days anxious attached but not because of my mother I think it was because but, of my yeah, social because, no and I completely agree that's why I talk about that pie right so you have this secure attachment with your mom you feel loved by her you know, you don't feel insecure in any way about your relationship with her, but then you get out there with the girls and there's all this stuff going on. And I actually had that as well. I mean, I was so into my best friend. My best friend was like everything to me, you know, and then she moved away in sixth grade and the girls got me and I got bullied and it was devastating. Like it's, that was an imprint for me as well that created a sense of mistrust of other women, right? Mistrust and rejection, like this feeling that I can feel rejected, that totally rejection and rejected by girls. Yes. Rejected by girls, but it's not real. Like it's my injury, right? 
I don't know. It felt pretty freaking real. <laughs> I don't know, but I mean, when you get older and, you know, people might reject you for whatever reason, reject, you know, they might. Right, right. No, I think as we get older, it's just, I don't even think it is rejection. And now that we're older, when we're talking about in the romantic setting, it's just this girl prefers a different flavor and she's going to mm-hmm. go try and find that flavor. Exactly. Whereas I think in, in middle school or, or when girls are younger, it is a little bit more direct. No, that was very rejecting. What you went through is very common, I think, you know, and also we, they might be picking up on that intensity or that, like that liking that, I mean, I think that's such an important lens you're pointing out, Jordana. That's exactly kind of in that same vein of like how we love our mom a little bit more, right? She's our first love. Yeah. We love our girlfriends a little bit more and we don't quite understand why. We love our girlfriends a little bit more exactly we don't understand they don't feel the same way or they kind of they're not that like it's like oh you're a little much for me and then you're then the lesson we internalize is oh when I like you know the the people I want to be close to find me to be too much exactly um, and that's a really hard that's a hard one to yeah. heal and digest and sort of exactly yeah no it's it's such an important point and it plays into then when you get older and you're out there, you're looking not only for a romantic partner, but also your relationships in the lesbian community. You know, are you scared of them? Oh my God, they're so clicky when I first got out. Yeah, I was so scared of the other girls and they were mean too. That was a really hard, that was worse than high school and it was all over again. Right. Oh man, yeah. But I always, I actually made a video called um, Why Are Lesbians So Clicky? It's on my YouTube channel. And one of the things I did have to acknowledge at the end of the video is these are good problems to have because there are some countries where the idea that there would even be a lesbian scene is beyond a miracle. And so- Right. You know, thank thank God we know that lesbians are actually really clicky. <laughs> it's a, an interesting scene when they all come together. But again, that's a that's a very privileged problem to be to yeah. be complaining about. But man, oh man, was it hard? It's hard, and it's and that's kind of the healing that has to happen too, right? You start working on your own injuries internally of like how you know what happened when you were younger so that you can start feeling confident and at ease in these groups, you know, and in these environments. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of my healing was more socially than, than the other stuff. Than, than the early injuries, yeah. Okay, so that's great. So we went through the avoidant attachment, the anxious attachment, the secure attachment style, then the, the dis- disorganized and the organized. <laughs> yeah, oh man. Um, and so just getting back to why we went into that, you were talking about merging. Um, right. And I just wanted to kind of give some context to the attachment styles before we jump into back to lesbian love addiction now. Okay. So in that sense, when say there's two women that have this issue for a very variety of reasons, oftentimes what happens, and this is happens in the all, all communities that deal with love addiction is an anxious and an avoidant will find each other over and over and over again. Right. And so immediately they're drawn to each other, their injuries match, they're unconsciously got all this stuff going on, they have no idea what, what's happening. They feel that instant you know, attraction and intensity. And how it plays out, just so it's clear, it's like the anxious wants to be closer and closer, that makes the avoidant pull away more and more, which makes the anxious more and more anxious, makes her cling more, which makes the avoidant push away more. Makes the anxious person crazy. Right. And the avoidant person's feeling smothered and saying, my girlfriend's crazy. Right. But in the beginning, 
the avoidant is, you know, doing the charm, the seduction. Right. She likes the chase. Right. And the anxious is feeling so secure by that. So the anxious person, the anxious lesbian is feeling falsely secure with this very seductive person that's totally into them and letting them know how into them they are. It feels amazing. So they go like this, right? And there's like this complete meshing going on. The merge happens and for a while it's great. Everyone's high, feeling a good time. Then that starts to happen. And usually the avoidance starts to feel smothered. So they pull a little away. They're so intertwined, they're so meshed at this point that the anxious person feels it immediately. Any movement away just to breathe is like, what's going on? And usually in that sense too, the anxious person is doesn't want that high to end. And oftentimes the person, the avoidant who pulls away has had enough of it. They're good. They're done. Oh, I've had my fill of the high. I'm good now. And the anxious one's like, I could have this for the rest of, why does this need to end, you know? So there's all this, so there's the physiological component. This is the female brain part, Jordana, that's so important, is we omit more oxytocin when we're falling in love than men do. I was doing a talk on this in one of my, you know, I was doing a presentation on this and, and one man got really mad, angry at me. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not making this up. This is the science, right? It, we just do, we do it when we're breastfeeding and we do it when we're falling in love. If you want to look at it from a primal perspective, it's how we survive. And that's what you talked about, the good feeling, the drug, the high that you were getting without having to use a substance, without having exactly. to Exactly. Oxytocin is like heroin. And so it's really intoxicating for a lot of us. And so it's, and when it's taken away, it's like you go into complete withdrawals as if you were going to detox to get off of heroin. And, but the thing with that withdrawal, and there's a whole chapter on it in my book, is that it takes longer than heroin. Heroin, they give you some other drugs. You're like over it in a week and you're good, right? With the withdrawals from a love-addicted relationship, you can be in that for six months. And there's a physiological component. Your nervous system feels like its leg has been broken. And that you, it's very hard to put, you know, a brace on the nervous system right? Because you have to keep getting out there and operating in the world. You can't just like put it to rest and lie there and recover. No, it's like you have a job, you have to take care of people. We have, yeah. Yeah. You so, and you're so fragile. There's just so that's where, you know, getting help or, or finding support groups. Is it worse than, I mean, any broken heart is kind of like that. It's worse than, uh, yes, it, but this, because it's got this level of, and I've seen this over and over again, and I personally went through it, it's got a level of when you're finally doing this and say you're doing it to never do it again, now you're doing some very deep mother wound work. Mm. Like you're this, because the reason that we keep getting into these situations from that unconscious healing health perspective that all of us have something inside of us that is always orienting towards the health and always wanting to 
evolve and become, you know, our best possible selves, that is also pushing you into these dysfunctional situations so that you're forced to eventually look at it and do something about it so you can heal. So to some extent, us, anyone who's making these suboptimal choices is doing so to unconsciously nudge themselves towards enough pain so that they do the healing work. Is that what you're saying? Perfect. That's exactly it. And that's the good news. So even if you find yourself in these situations, when you wake up and say, okay, I'm going to do something about this, there's so much hope because you can really turn this situation around. Yeah. And that whole push pull relationship is so toxic. And then, you know, we, we didn't, one thing you didn't mention, but that occurs to me is, you know, um, makeup sex when you've been in a fight with someone is so intense. And so it seems like in this situation, it would be just a whole lot of that, which just. Oh, and, and, and what can happen is you can end up going back to the toxic relationship. It starts up again. Yeah, no, that's what you were describing with yourself. You said for, with one of your exes, you kept going back to, kept going back to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So then you're saying that then the path forward is deep mother work. What are some steps that people all over the world that might want to tap into this? Are th- what are some things that they might do for themselves? Absolutely. Well, first of all, really sort of getting an idea of what happened to your mom. So this is sort of intergenerational work. And that's actually not in my book, but I'm, I'm co- incorporating it a lot of my work now. I've been doing a lot of that work myself. I've been getting trained in a program. You really understand what your mom went through. What was her life like? And her mom and how she was treated and their, and their mother and her mother before her. And her mom, exact bingo, 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 right? So we've got this epigenetics now. And you've heard of epigenetics, right? So yes. the epigenetics is what we're recognizing is, you know, when when we're still cells, we're in our mom's body. So this is really mind blowing, I think, is when we are about when our mom is a fetus in her mom's body at about five, six months, all of her ovaries are fully formed. So half of you is also marinating in your grandmother's body. So right there, whatever your grandmother's going through can have an impact not only on your mom, but on half of the cell that you come from, right? So, and what there, what epigenetics is showing us is that depression and mental you know, dysfunctional situations are passed down, right? You can pass depression down. You can literally pass. So if you have, if you're in an area where your grandmother had a lot of trauma, your mother had a lot of trauma, you are, you are very likely could be very impacted by this, right? So find out what happened to them. And the bottom line is we find out what's happening so we can understand it, so we can depersonalize it. So a lot of what happens when we have a big mother wound is we take it very personally. There's a tiny part in us that thinks this happened to me because I deserved it. Something's wrong with me. I'm not worthy. I'm not lovable. And then it's all because why else would my mom do this to me? When we start to find out what happened to her. Right. She did it because it's the only way she knew how to be. She did it because it was done unto her. Right. And it had nothing to do with her not loving you or her thinking you weren't a good enough little girl or any of that. She didn't get the juice from her mom. 
So how is she going to have the juice to give you, right? And her mom didn't have the juice to give because maybe her mom was one of 10 children. I mean, I'm saying this anecdotally, but I'm seeing this a lot more. There's a rule in law and property. I was a lawyer. um, I'm a lawyer. And there's this, you know, when it comes to passing property, you can't pass prop. You can't give to somebody else what you don't own. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's a great analogy. So depersonalizing it by understanding your mom is essential, right? Even, and then maybe a part might still feel personal, recognize that part, give that part compassion, utilize your wise mind, that rational wise part of you that knows it's not personal and really give that a lot of support. So to the extent that people are lucky enough to have mothers that are still with us, what do you, do you recommend actually asking questions? Absolutely. I mean, one of the most healing things that happened with my mom is we sat down and we talked. And when I was very bullied, that first initial time I was bullied, my mom handled it so poorly. She asked me, what had I done wrong? And that like made the trauma 10 times worse because I was going to her in deep pain. In need. And she shamed you for it. And she shamed me. In our conversation, she said, I didn't know what to do. And that was, that was so healing. Like, I no longer blamed her for messing that up because she owned that she didn't understand, you know, and I was so different than she was. She didn't really understand me and she really came clean about that. So that was very helpful. You know, really look at your, what are the stories within your family? Like what happened? What's going on? Talk to your mom. If your mom is not not the kind of person that you can talk to, set boundaries then. Or if she's not with us. If she's not with you. So what can people do in that situation? So I asked you, if she's alive now, what can people do to the extent that their mother's no longer with us? You can still do a lot of the work because you have the stories, right? Find the stories. If you're, if other family members are alive, find out your mom's stories. Like, where did she come from? What was her early childhood like? What was her mom like? What was her father like? What was her family like? Get as much of the information as you can. If you can't get that information, then look at your symptoms. And your symptoms will give you a lot of information. Are you anxious? Well, then something happened to you in utero. Something happened to you in your early childhood that, you know, your mom maybe was like postpartum depression, not really available. So when you were sitting there and she's holding you, you weren't really feeling someone there that was able to support you. And you knew that and you got anxious. A lot of folks I work with that are anxious, you know, ended up in an incubator right? That's nobody's fault, but they were premature or something happened. Their first several weeks are in an incubator. Instead of being held, is what you're saying, right? Right. My wife is in an incubator and she's been healing an anxious attachment for a long time. So that those things happen. So, you know, find the stories, learn how to understand what your mom went through, depersonalize it, and then start healing yourself. Because, you know, we get to a point And I know it takes a long time to sort of differentiate from our parents and from our moms, but to a point where you're like, well, now it's, yes, this happened to me. I had this tough childhood. These bad things happened. It really sucks. I've got trauma from it, but I now need to take care of that. It's not my parents' job anymore. We have moved on from that. It's now my job. And I wasn't rejected. So as bad as it all it was, it was a very impersonal thing and it wasn't about me and it wasn't about me. Yeah. Right. And now I can do something about it. I can do lots of things to heal myself. It reminds me of how sometimes if, um, 
it's easier to fix a thing if we don't feel we're being blamed for it. Yeah. And so when we realize there's no rejection behind this, there doesn't need to be that same defensiveness anymore. You could just sort of look objectively and say, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, although I obviously, easy for me to say because, you know, with the relationship that I had with my mom is quite unlike what you're describing. But um, it was interesting what you said about your wife being an anxious attached to some extent. And then you also having had an anxious attached background. And my understanding of attachment styles is usually anxious and anxious don't attract Right. So, so, well, I had done a lot of work by the time I met her. And so had she, you know, we were actually both in SLAA, uh, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Oh. And so we were already doing the work. I had been doing a serious year of intense inner work, somatic body work, you know, groups, everything. Um, and I was in an really actually an incredible place when I met her, feeling really amazing. So, and how many years has it been? Eight. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's really very much a victory for me. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Score. Yeah, definitely. And it's and and part of it was, and I say this for love addicts because it's not for everyone, but I had to work on self-love first before I was going to be ready to actually invite a really healthy person for me that was a great fit that was a soulmate. I wasn't in any position to be able to do that because there was so much mix up in every choice I made. Right. So. I don't know um, what would have happened if I met my partner way earlier in life. I think we're such a great fit that I don't know that I would have, that it's, that I can say like, Oh, I needed to like learn self-love before that would have worked. I think we're just a good match, but I will say that having met her way later in life, we met when I was already 41 years old. I had just by virtue of being alone for so many years and, and having so much like life experience, I had done a lot of work on myself by then. And I already like had, I don't know that I can say, oh, it wouldn't have worked if I hadn't, but I, I like that I have. And I think it's exactly, you're coming to it in a much different place, yeah. right? Which is great for the relationship. Yeah. And great for you yeah. and great for her. Great for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> so for for getting back to love addiction and the steps, there's understand and depersonalize. Are there any other exercises that you recommend? Uh, you know, I, I really am a big believer in talk therapy, but I also do a lot of mindfulness work as well. Like, you know, learning how to zoom out, kind of get a better perspective from this sort of enlightened witness, looking down at what's going on inside, not taking it all so seriously. And when you say mindfulness, you mean just sort of observing as your mind works? Yes, pulling back, you know, getting some distance, some detachment from all the chatter inside. What part is, is talking right now? What, what's needed? What do you need to do to take care of yourself? You know, what feelings are you having or numbing? It's funny how um, I, maybe that is a part of, you know, the curriculum more now than it was when I was growing up. I never heard anything about that sort of thing when I was growing up. And I remember in my early 20s reading that Eckhart Tolle book, The Power of Now, and learning, you are not your mind. You are not your identity. You are not. And I was like, what? Like, what does this even mean? And it really, it, it blew my mind. I, I know we keep saying the word mind, but it, it absolutely blew my head off. And yeah, the ability to see ourselves 
as we get triggered, as we get mad, as we're acting immature, as we're being passive aggressive, as we're acting in ways we're not proud of, but also in the ways that we are proud of. Um, exactly. And being able to sort of see ourselves as we go and observe. It's so incredible. So important. So that's a big part of it. So what are the resources you recommend for that? So oh, for that, so, well, you just mentioned one of my favorite books. I love The Power of Now. I think it's incredible. Untethered Souls, another one. Such a good one. Michael Singer. Yeah, and he talks about, you know, the, the roommate, the inner roommate. That never shuts up. Yeah, this, this the nutter inside, just going, nah, 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 you know. And he's such a jerk. Like, get some perspective on that. You know, I another one I love is Pema Chodron. She's one of my favorite. Oh, yeah, the places that scare you and um, when things fall when apart. When things fall apart, yeah. And taking That's the her. leap. I love her. And, yeah, she's so vulnerable and she always gets into her own story about like, you know, wow, I was, you know, working in this abbey and no one liked what I was doing and I had to face my own stuff. And, you know, and when we're having to face ourselves honestly and realistically, it's very actually empowering and healing. Yeah. For anyone who hasn't heard of any of these things before, you can't read the, those three books, The Power of Now... Untethered soul. Untethered soul and when things fall apart and then not be a different person at the end of it. That's right. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. So that's the mindfulness piece. And then the other piece I really bring into my work is uh, like somatic piece. So if someone's really feeling anxious, you know, I have these tools of how to breathe and slow down and pause and really, what is your body saying? And where is it saying it? Where? Right, right. And like feelings can be so uncomfortable and we are all so designed to run as fast as we can and it's always going to make things worse over time you know and you can start having other issues like physical stuff or stomach stuff or you know headaches or you know just things start to manifest if you don't really try to learn how to be with the feelings that are uncomfortable. Right. Because what will happen instead is the alternative to that is you get an uncomfortable feeling, you turn on the TV, you get an uncomfortable feeling, you make a phone call, you get an uncomfortable feeling, you check social media, you get an uncomfortable feeling, you eat some food, um, you could distract from it. And the alternative to that. Yeah. We have so many addictions, so many addictions, little ones, nuanced ones, food, like you said, or TV, not ones that are going to like land you in jail or like, you know, have you lose your job? I might, I might be landed in jail if someone ever tries to take chocolate out of my life and, <laughs> and kind of see what happens. See what happens to me then. <laughs> well, you know, it might people get ugly. who live very long lives always report they eat chocolate, so that's good. I yeah. don't think anyone's take it from you. So, so that's you know just. And, and I think a big part of it, we live, a lot of us, obviously not all over the world, but we happen to in a lot of different places, especially if you live in a city, fast, fast, right? With these phones and technologies made everything more convenient. It's also made everything more saturated, right? We're just constantly have access to being on a device or distracting, slowing down, just pausing, breathing, if you're not really a meditator, then practice mindfulness when you're, even if it's, God, 30 seconds, walk outside, notice a tree. Nature. Sure. You know, and that's, well, Eckhart talks about that too. I mean, you go forest bathing and 
you know, I love that term. The Japanese coined it. It's forest bathing. You just go in amongst trees. You can't help but calm down. Your whole system will go, thank you so much. Thank you for bringing me here. You know, like it's just, yeah. So when that's, when your system slows down, when you do these exercises of pausing, you actually can start hearing more wisdom. Things move away that are in the way of actually hearing your gut, you know, hearing called the inner wise woman, you know, just like hearing that part of you that's leading you in the right direction. And fundamentally, I think you become a more attractive person because when we're busy, busy, busy in our heads, we don't have, we can't connect as well and we're not as pleasant to be around. Yeah. Whereas people that are more deeply in touch with the moment are more, more engaging. Yeah. Think they're just more attractive people. Right. When someone is present with you, it's very attractive, right? And when they're, they've done enough work to feel comfortable in their own bodies and emotions and they could be present in the moment. Exactly. Exactly. So that's the three. It's like figuring out your, your mother wound, healing that, working on that, the mindfulness piece and the somatic piece and learning how to really deal with, move through your feelings. Because even as we heal, it doesn't mean you're going to stop having difficult emotions like life is just going to keep lifing and even as you heal and maybe heal your love addiction and start having a healthy relationship you're still get something else is going yeah you get sick in another way or someone you love will whatever or you know you still have to go to work every day in this world where people are sometimes difficult and challenging in their own ways and different humans that are in our lives have their own personality disorders and that we have to deal with them too. And exactly. Well said. You have a pandemic, the whole world. One of those. Yeah, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's no escaping it. Pain is inevitable. That's what they say, right? Pain is inevitable, but the extent to which we suffer is optional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's great stuff. Well, that's great advice. Mother wound, mindfulness, and somatically dealing with our feelings as a path for lesbian love addiction. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to jump into? Yeah, I guess the other thing I would just say that I think is an important piece is that when you grow up in a heterosexist, patriarchal, misogynistic, homophobic world, you're going to have that kind of injury too, you know, and obviously depending on where you live or where you're from, it might be less or more, right? So um, some people live in bubbles and don't feel it as much, but I've actually worked with folks who grew up in very progressive places and still had a lot of this because it's in the zeitgeist and it's been there for a long time. So As women, we deal with both. That's why I called it lesbian phobia. We deal with heterosexism and homophobia and misogyny and sexism. So just know from that sort of macro level that we internalize, we can internalize those messages. Everyone does it differently, but it can also affect how you feel about yourself. And how you, and who you reject. Who you reject, right? Right, you could be rejecting perfectly good people for you because of these weird internalized things that aren't serving you at all. Right. So once you get close to someone, you're like, oh, you know, that internalized lesbian phobia might come up and you'll be like, oh, wait, I can't do this, actually. 
or they'll repulse you in some subconscious way that has more to do with one thing than the other. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the kind of macro level that I bring into that, that pie as well. Yeah. That's a, that's an important piece. Yeah. It's just a piece. It's not all of it, but it's an important piece. And that's not straight people with this issue aren't dealing with that. We must bring that into ours. Yeah. And the other part is to depersonalize that, right? Like society is really cultural messages are the problem. We're not the problem. You know, the world is so diverse, so amazing in its diversity. This is how it's been made. And also understanding in the same way that we had some understanding of our mother and what was done unto her, also the understanding that we did indeed evolve from apes and that we are a bunch of evolved apes trying, like, and even the jerks who came before us had worse things coming before them and, um, and it doesn't, it's not necessarily personal despite how terrible and disgusting and not okay it all is when we're talking about these things. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's so well said, Jordana, because it's like the point is none of it ultimately is personal. And I, you know, the four agreements say that, you know, one of his agreements was nothing's personal and that don't take anything personally. Don't take anything personally. Yeah. Even that, that's not personal. Like all these people that have these sort of ideas of how people should live, you know, that's all come from passed down through generations and religion and cultures. They don't even really know why they feel that way, honestly. Also, what's an important piece of this pie is your nature, however you came in with your personality traits, you know, all of the different aspects of your nature meets your nurture, you know, meets your mom, meets your family system, meets your dad, meets your siblings. Do you want to jump into the female brain being different from the male brain? Or Okay, yeah, sure. Okay. Um... It's a small part of the brain, right? Most of our brains are the same, right? We have, because there's a, this is also controversial, right? So I like to make that caveat. Most of our brain is the same, but our brains are denser. We have a thicker corpus callosum and we have more neuronal pathways regarding relationships. We just do. And looking back into tribal pace, you know, with our ancestors, the tribal times, you know, women were the glue, right? Kept the tribe together, stayed together, um, you know, where you ever you were located, kept everything together. That's a piece. We also have much different hormones, right? So estrogen is a bonding, more of a bonding hormone. Testosterone is more of an aggressive, sort of highly sexual hormone. So um, these are very key components that are different. And so when you get two women together, You've got both of them having the same similar type brain and similar type hormones. I was listening to a podcast of you when you were talking about this played out the most intensely during women falling in love and the urge to merge you were talking about because the oxytocin is so intense and women emit more oxytocin. You're saying that that is why. That's why. That's why. That's why ultimately first there's the high going on. So when you're high, and this is a natural high, but when you're high, you're not thinking clearly. Your prefrontal cortex isn't in the front running the show. It's now been co-opted and the high is sort of in charge and the intoxication. And so then there is an intensity that occurs that feels like intimacy. So there's a false sense of intimacy 
agency, there's a false sense that I know this person really well. You don't know them at all, right? You may feel familiar. You may feel comfortable with them. That call, it could be true and wonderful, but the sense that you know them is very uh, dangerous because then you start thinking like, you start merging and you feel like you've met the person for your life and you haven't taken the time to get to actually know them to see if you even have anything in common sometimes. You might not have much in common. And when all those hormones drop away, and they will. So what science has found out is we are in this honeymoon phase for a max of two years. That is the most the human brain can kind of keep us in this honeymoon phase. Lesbians, I feel like, burn it out much faster when they're in this very intense phase. But at the very right. least, don't get engaged within two years. Right, exactly, exactly. That's very important. And so, and it takes two years to really get to know somebody. So, um, but what happens is, say you really got, you know, um, you really thought that this was real, right? And you fall into this situation and you've merged and then all of the honeymoon drops away, the avoidance pulling away, the, you know, like everything starts to fall apart. And this is when it can get so challenging and so painful. And fights start to happen. You start realizing you don't have much in common, but maybe you've already moved in together. And also women, because of how we are, we, and if you're, you know, an empathic kind of person, you'll have more uh, codependency behaviors. You might start um, um, saying yes to things that you shouldn't be saying yes to. You might be giving in to things that you really don't um, want to do. You might be presenting yourself as liking more of your partner's lifestyle than you really do. Because the goal you have is to stay connected and not to be true to yourself. At all costs. Exactly. And that's a really dangerous thing because suddenly when that period, you know, calms down and you start seeing each other who you really are and you start having like, you know, oh, I don't really know this person that well. You realize that you've started presenting yourself as someone who's interested in backpacking and you're not at all. I don't know, you know, something like that. And it's like, you know, suddenly you have to sort of backpedal and the other person might be, wait a minute, uh, this was, you knew this was important to me. I thought, we had agreed on this. And so what comes up with that is guilt and, oh, how did I not, you know, handle this in a way that would have been easier? Yeah, because the people pleasing one is conforming and the person who's being conformed to doesn't know that. They think that you just have a good match. So then they actually, yeah. the person who, in some ways, the they were lied to. And so they fell, in, they fell in love with someone that maybe if they knew you didn't like those things in the first place, Maybe your fear was right. Maybe you're not a good match, but maybe that's okay. Exactly. Um, so I think exactly. what I'm hearing is um, like this, the, it almost sounds to me like people need to spend a lot more time having real conversations and not just conversations about how much you like each other, but conversations like, tell me about yourself. Right. And, and watching that tendency to please, watching that tendency to, oh, I want to merge with you and I want you to like me so badly that I'll become whoever you want me to be. You know, if any of that's coming up, which I think oftentimes is coming from a place of a fear that 
there won't ever be someone else that I click with on this level. There won't be anyone else that I like this much. And I think that's another problem with our community is the scarcity mentality. Right. That, that it's just really, really hard to find someone. And I just think that that is a meme that we tell ourselves. I think it's, yeah. it's something that we've convinced ourselves of and made it true because it doesn't have to, I just, it's, it's not real. I agree. I completely agree. And um, I think getting away from that scarcity mentality, you know, is part of the work when you're doing all of this inner work, working on that as well is, is also as, as essential. Just repeat the mantra, hot lesbians are it's everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> I love that one. I love your motto. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so important. I think our community needs it and it's not a lie. So why not just no, remind yourself of it every day? True. Hell yeah, it's true. It's true. And, and as, you know, you know, this becomes more normalized and, you know, and we're seeing ourselves more on media, it's happening too, because more and more people are coming out and it's just happening. Yeah. Hot lesbians are everywhere. Yes. This has been such a fun, amazing conversation. Is there anything I left out that we should jump into before? So. I think you got it. I think we got it all. Don't you? I think so. I had a lot of fun talking to you. We can do it again one day. Absolutely. I'd love that. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and for this great advice. For women who want to learn more about what you do or see more of your work, um, where can people go to find more? Well, there's a couple websites. So there's lesbianloveaddiction.com, which is where my book is. And then you can get a sneak peek of it. Um, I have my own website, drlaurencostine.com. And then I have uh, a therapy center with my wife. We opened up in the pandemic called awakentherapycenter.com. And there's a lot of blogs on there. That's a, like a holistic kind of center, but very also queer and multiculturally focused. Sounds awesome. And I also have a course and that's um, more information of that can be found on my lesbian love addiction uh, website, which is... I help women who are having relationship issues, specifically lesbians and queer women who are having relationship issues. And these relationship patterns we discussed, um, a, a course and a supportive program to get support around that. That's so great. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me and too. I'm so glad we did it. Me too. Thank you so much for Dana for inviting me. It's wonderful. You know, I, as I said, I've been listening to a lot of your podcasts, loving them. You've been just having such incredible conversations out there, really important stuff. So I appreciate all that you're doing. Thank you for being a part of it. It really means a lot, Lauren. So fun hanging out. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.